Hey guys, awesome fun podcast today. Quite a bit different from the last one. Last podcast, I was kind of just didn't, yeah, I wasn't really feeling it. The energy wasn't as high, wasn't as hyped. But uh, today I am on fucking fire. You're gonna listen. You're gonna listen because I'm telling you to listen. You're listening now. Um, I discuss. Uh, for first off, I start off talking a little bit about politics about Joe Biden. Uh, is Joe Biden a uh, reptilian? I'm joking, sort of. Uh, is he an NPC, a non-playable character? Maybe. He's certainly acting like it. Then I talk about TikTok. Some big stuff happened around TikTok and SJW content. I love it. Then I go into Ray Dalio being interviewed on Lex Friedman's AI podcast. Fucking awesome. Super awesome. They talk about AI, awesome stuff, totally worth a listen. So um, go to my website for more stuff, uh, tstutch.com. Go to my YouTube channel, like and subscribe, Taylor Space Stutch. Uh, You can follow me on Twitter, tstutch1. Email me, tayradio1 at gmail.com. Enjoy the episode. All right, guys, let's begin a little bit here talking about the soundbite that is making the mother effing rounds. What is that exactly? I'll tell you what it is if you have had your head in the sand or if you are a uh, logical, rational person who enjoys their sanity and you're not following politics. Then you'll understand that, um, well, I don't know what you'll understand, but I'm ahead and uh, give it to you. Um, Joe Biden has had a lot of clips for a while kind of making the airwaves um, because he just kind of says stupid shit. Uh, He says stuff that just seems ill-timed, out of place, doesn't quite make sense, Um, you know, and there's all these videos of him with kids, and it's he doesn't necessarily do, like, super inappropriate stuff with the kids, but he does inappropriate stuff with the kids, and what it is, and the thing is this, is he does all of this stuff in full view of other people. Um, And he says crazy shit in front of tons of people. So first, I'm going to tell you what I think would be interesting is if he is a not a real person. So entertain this idea with me for a second. Have you guys heard of NPCs? NPCs are non-playable characters. That is a term that really got uh, kicked off um, this year. Uh, I think earlier this year, or was it the end of last year, when people on Twitter started using NPCs to discuss uh, some far lefties on the internet uh, because they weren't exhibiting uh, unique thought patterns or independent thought patterns. Everything was very, uh, very much just like um, take and regurgitate what other people were saying. So it's kind of uh, the the thing is this. If you follow politics, if you know what's going on, Trump derangement syndrome is real. And a lot of people are um, uh, losing their minds over the president so much so that what they're saying, their critiques of him, they don't make any sense. Um, people are upset when he does good things. Like, for example, he wanted to pull out of Syria, and everybody knows that um, you know, we, we a lot of people wanted to get out of Syria. Every you know, the Democrats used to be the people that were anti-war. Well, as soon as Trump says he wants to get out of Syria, then all of a sudden people start talking about oh how bad how bad it is. You know, uh, basically everything he does, 
They just try to talk about the negative side of it. And so NPCs are people who just kind of follow and drink up that line of thinking. Now, that being said, there are NPCs on both sides. There are NPCs on the left. There are NPCs on the right. Um, And so these people are ones, like I said, they don't have real thoughts of their own. Everything's a regurgitation, a complete regurgitation in in its uh, – in in its – holistic whatever was said it's all regurgitated and you can see this on on twitter because some people will say the exact same shit over and over and over again and so um joe biden to me is kind of like an npc he's uh like a non-playable character i almost wonder you know i don't believe in the reptilian people but if I were to believe in reptilian people that that take the form of humans and put on human skin, I would put Joe Biden in that context. And here's why. Because he doesn't quite act human. He does he just there's something about him that, you know, I he has okay, so let me just go there. The things he says and that some of the things yeah, mostly the things he says and like I said, the things he does on camera where he's like sniffing the uh, heads of children for long periods of time and whispering into their ears. The thing about that stuff is that he does it and it's like he's un- – the thing is this. To me, it's like he's unaware that it's inappropriate. It almost doesn't look like he's totally aware that he's not supposed to be doing what he's doing or he's not supposed to be saying what he's saying. That's why I wonder, like, what's going on there. Anyway, the clip that's going around is a clip of him talking um, in, I don't, I think it might have been a southern state, and he's discussing, I don't know what the fuck he's talking about, but he starts going off on a random tangent about being a lifeguard and how when he was a lifeguard, the kids used to put down the hairs on his legs and they would watch the hairs stand up again. Um, after they would dry, presumably, and then how he said he liked it when kids would jump in his lap. He said he always liked it when kids jumped in his lap, um, and you know he just said a lot of weird shit. And you know that's not the first time he's had a habit of saying weird, strange things. Uh, and a lot of people are roasting him. A lot of people like H three H three. The, my, one of my favorite podcasts, they were roasting him. Chris D'Elia was roasting him. I, I think I've heard other comedians roast him. It's really getting mainstream. It's really getting popular to look at his gaffes and go, what the fuck is he thinking? And like when he was going off, if you listen and watch that um, the speech where he's talking about the kids jumping on his lap, there's a couple of things going on there that I see and that I understand as somebody who talks a lot for a living um, who you know, and who's been on speech and debate? Part of what he's doing is he's just trying to talk and talk and talk. Like he got off topic. That's what happened. He's giving a speech and he got off topic. So he's trying to figure out how to get back on topic. But you get lost sometimes when you go down those tangents. You don't remember where you are. And at his age, he probably he's probably really having trouble remembering where he was, in it, both physically and mentally. So he starts just going off. But the other thing is this, is that I wonder if he understands that what he's saying is inappropriate. Like I wonder if when he starts talking about this stuff, if he doesn't have an understanding of like, hey, dude, uh, 
you do realize like this stuff is not appropriate, right? Like you're not supposed to be saying this kind of shit. And so, but then again, like for him, it's almost like not a big, the thing is about him is that he treats everything like it's not a big deal, right? And uh, it's a little bit Trump-esque, but it's different. Like Trump, you he doesn't give a fuck. With uh, Biden, to me, it looks like he just doesn't know that he's not supposed to be saying these things. Like um, he just – there was just a clip that's going around of him calling somebody fat at his – one of his – not one of his rallies at a uh, town hall. And now I can understand. You know, you get under pressure. You start saying – you start – you know, like you get pissed off. You say something stupid. But it just – he has said so many stupid things, so many um, there are like people every after every debate I'm hearing about dumb shit he says, and I'm just wondering, you know, if there is a reptilian dressed up as a person, Joe Biden is it. Now, the other more rational and logical explanation for this situation is that he's simply just having mental problems as he's getting older, um, which you know what seems to really hit some politicians hard, uh, like like Joe Biden, man. It just looks like he's losing – honestly, it looks like he's losing his mind is what it looks like. If um, – you know, assuming he is a real person and he's not just some NPC or some lizard person, uh, I think he's getting he's, – I think he's developing dementia um, because he doesn't remember shit. And I think what's coming out of his mind when he starts speaking is just random shit. But when he says the inappropriate stuff – it's almost as though his mind is just releasing information at this point. You know what I'm saying? Like whenever he starts talking, his mind just releases stored information and he doesn't really have any control over it, which is funny but also kind of weird and devastating for him. So it's just crazy. Now, uh, I want to pivot now. You need to check out those 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 um those uh those clips of his recent speeches. It's weird. Funny and weird and fucking strange. Um, and go watch Chris D'Elia on Congratulations Podcast. He made some hilarious jokes about it. It's absolutely phenomenal and spot on too. Um, now, I want to pivot over to TikTok. So I have been playing around on TikTok for a little while. It's fun. It's actually a super entertaining app. And it's getting – for me, it's getting more entertaining. I think more people are joining the app and I'm enjoying the comedic content a lot. There are some really fun. There's some really funny shit on there, um, and so what's going on with TikTok is, and I heard this from what is it from uh, Tim Pool. Tim Pool talked about this on his um, you know follow Tim Pool. You know, I I really let me ta- go on a tangent here, and hopefully I'll remember to come back. I really enjoyed some of Tim Pool's content. Um, I think here's where I think Tim Pool's strengths are. I think Tim Pool's strengths are not his technical knowledge of any particular subject. I think his strengths are closer to that of a Cernovich, where he has a pretty – I think he has a good uh, finger on the culture. I think he's got a good um, idea of uh, where the cultural – what's going on in terms of the cultural heat, uh, what people are thinking, what people are doing. Um, of course, him and Cernovich are different and they have different things they talk about, but uh, I de- I think that Tim Pool has some valuable insight. Uh, Tim Pool has also been talking about how he thinks there's we could be in a civil war or heading towards one. 
I believe it as well. And uh, maybe I'll get back on that about demographics, demographics, demographics. Um, so back to what I was saying. Temple did a, rep- a uh, great video on TikTok how TikTok came up with a brilliant plan to deal with SJWs. So what was that plan? Now, what has been going on with social justice warriors and all these LGBTQ people with these um, and the far leftists on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram? What do they do? They claim that um, you know somebody on there is racist, homophobic, whatever, and that they're causing violence or they're causing harm to other people on the platform, um, that they are a problem, right? So what they do is is those people create a problem. So maybe it's like a you know maybe like five percent of the of the you know a small percentage of users are creating the biggest uproar on all these media platforms, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter. I mean, you can, I don't have the data, but I guarantee you the people that are complaining, calling advertisers, trying to get people deplatformed are a super minority of people on the platform. Now, um, TikTok is a Chinese-owned company, so they don't quite sit in the pocket like U.S. companies do. And they had a very interesting way of dealing with these SJW fucksticks. Um, if you want to know... We're going to go through these ad, this one ad from Anchor, and I'll be right back. So according to Tim Pool, uh, TikTok released a statement saying that they admitted to shadow banning and suppressing content from marginalized creators, from like LGBTQ, stuff like you know, LGBTQ, you know, fat people, people that put like fat in their bio, like fat, proud woman, that kind of shit. Now, you might say, well, why, why would they do that? And here's what they – here's the idea. So Tim Pool used the idea um, – you know, actually, you should go watch his video. It's on his YouTube channel. I'm not going to go through the whole thing. But essentially what they did was they said, hey, instead of banning like the majority of our users or instead of having to police you know, tons and tons of users – for making uh, statements that people view as harassment or for making comments people view as harassment, let's suppress the videos of people who are likely to be harassed, who are vulnerable to harassment. So instead of deleting all the people that don't like watching videos of fat people, well, they said, well, we'll just suppress the views that fat people get. Not, you know, I'm simplifying. It wasn't fat people, but it was, you know, those people that are all very body positivity or like people who were likely to get bullied, like maybe super queer LGBTQ people um, were uh, were trying to – they were trying to suppress those because they didn't want them to be harassed because if they got too harassed, then those people would launch complaints and start a mass hysteria against the platform, which would drive away advertisers. So for TikTok to protect its growing base of uh, customers and advertisers, they said, hey, instead of banning all of our users like what Twitter and YouTube and Facebook do, they said, we'll just ban the people who are going to be harassed. We'll just reverse it because that's a super minority. See, here's the thing is that the people that are going to be harassed, uh, it's not an issue 
if they don't make it an issue, right? Because everyone can face criticism once you get to a certain size of prominence. The thing is, though, is that these people say, oh, I'm being harassed. You need to do something about the platform. Instead of me getting off the platform, you need to do something about it. So that's what they do on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Well, TikTok, a Chinese-owned company who do things differently, said, no, fuck that shit. We're going to suppress their content. And it's funny because it essentially protects the users, right? It protects the people who are marginalized because they are not going to get as much harassment. It just suppresses how many views they're going to get as well, which might not be a bad thing. Um, but I thought this is so awesome. And I it's actually unfortunate that TikTok went back on it because TikTok, I think, decided not to uh, continue along that path, not to suppress the views of, um, of marginalized people. Uh, and and I'm like, dude, why not? Keep it going. Because you know what? The the strategy they took, in my opinion, is appropriate. And it's appropriate because they they have a bottom line. Their bottom line is, look, we want to appeal to the widest amount of people, the widest group of people. There are people of all ethnic backgrounds, of all sexual orientations, of all races, of all religious groups that are totally fine with the majority of things that are going on on these big platforms like Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. Like um, a lot of people don't realize this, but on Facebook, all the fake news scare, look, dude, nobody was making a big deal out of fake news. The reason why the fake news shit got a big uh, – got a lot of attention on Facebook is because Trump won. And the left-wing media said, oh, it's because – and they – here's the thing. On the internet, conservative media does really, really well. This is why YouTube blocks conservatives and suppresses conservative content because the far uh, – the minority, super minority of left-wingers uh, goes after advertisers. Um, because these very popular content, conservatives make really popular content on the internet. And you might say, well, is that because most people are conservative? No, it's probably because there's no outlets for conservative opinions. So when conservatives gain a foothold in an area, it's very popular. Whereas most of the culture, like the movies, TV shows, and news media are all, and like, you know, academic institutions, all of these are very left-leaning institutions, and so it's already you, you're the default state of going through American uh, cultural, academic, in, and political institutions. For, well, I won't say political, but cultural and academic landscape is majority left-wing, and so when conservatives have an outlet to express themselves, it blows up because there's all of this built-up, all of this built-up demand that has no. Uh, no supply. So when the supply is, is created, the uh, value explodes because you have a small amount of supply, you have a huge amount of demand. So those conservative content creators get tons of views, tons of listens, tons of shares, tons of likes. So the super minority of liberals were like, hey, Trump got elected because these right wing news sites, right? Like Daily Wire, Blaze, all this shit. And it's like, okay. I shouldn't maybe shouldn't maybe say the blaze, but all of the uh, you know non leftist um, you know news sites got a lot a lot of uh, coverage by people on the internet. And don't get me wrong, 
there definitely is fake news that goes on. Like there are fake articles that are shared. There are memes with fake statistics all over the place on Facebook. But the the things that the Democrats were targeting were not those. They were just targeting conservative websites, right? Or they're cons- targeting people like Infowars, Alex Jones, because these guys have a lot of influence. And these guys got a lot of people to vote Trump. Now, the Daily Wire, not so much because Ben Shapiro is a little little puss who has been pretty much against Trump all the time. Now, I'm not saying you have to be pro-Trump, but um, he's just been always very – he's been anti-Trump, you know, like a never-Trumper basically. Um, and uh, yeah, so there's that. Um, but the – I love how TikTok said, look – we are not going to take this stance. There's a my super minority of people who want censorship, right? We know that they're going to cry. They're going to cry if uh, if people say anything mean about them, or if people make content that um, is in any way criticizing of the way these super minority of people live. So let's just not give these super minority all the attention that they need. Or that they want because they'll get unwanted attention, then those people will come after our, our uh, advertisers and we'll lose money as a platform. So good on TikTok for doing that. Honestly, I think that's a really cool approach. I don't think they're doing it anymore, but hey, that's what I think Twitter should do. Hey, if you are going to go complain to Twitter about somebody who made a gay joke or who said the N-word, then you should get deleted. Right now, there's one thing if someone's doxing you, right? I think that people shouldn't be allowed to dox. I think people shouldn't be allowed to call for actual physical violence against somebody. But beyond like those very, very narrow exceptions of actually trying to harm somebody, calling somebody a name, making a joke should get the person who complains banned, not the person who made the joke banned. Um, Now, on a switch of events here, there is a really cool podcast by Lex Friedman called uh, – I think it's called AI or something. The AI uh, – yeah, 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 yeah. Um, maybe it's not called the AI podcast, but it's um, um, Lex Friedman, L-E-X-F-R-I-D-M-A-N. And he talks a lot about AI. He had Elon Musk on. And right now he's got a guy on <laughs> – right now. I'm, I'm listening to an awesome – episode with him and Ray Dalio. Ray Dalio is a investor, entrepreneur, has, uh, I guess, uh, I think he was, what was it? He founded Blackstone, not Blackstone, let me see, Ray Dalio. He's a, an American billionaire investor, hedge fund manager, and philanthropist. He is the founder, co-chairman, and co-chief investment officer of Bridgewater Associates, one of the world's largest hedge funds. So, and it's important to note, hedge fund, and he's a founder of it. So, hedge funds, what's important is that, um, what's important with hedge funds, and it's funny because Nassim Taleb highly respects hedge funds because there is a, I don't know if it's a requirement, but hedge funds, the managers, the owners, they're typically run by founders, I think, and then also they have to put their money in the fund. So, like banks use other people's money to invest, hedge funds use their own money plus the investor's money. So uh, basically, it's some you're putting your money with somebody who has skin in the game. If they lose, if uh, they, if you lose, they lose. 
So that's why uh, hedge funds can be a uh, much better investment than uh, using a bank because banks, they since they're not always using their own money, they don't have anything to lose if they if you lose all your money. They could, they'll still be fine and they'll get bailouts from the government. So they're pieces of shit most of the time too. Um, now. He is a very intelligent guy, of course. I mean, I just read to you a basic thing off of Wikipedia. Uh, he is a, a Raymond Delio, American billionaire investor, hedge fund manager, philanthropist, founder of a billion-dollar hedge fund. Obviously, he's intelligent. And he's going – he was talking to Lex Friedman about AI. And I thought it was so interesting because his conversa- conversation, there was little clips. There's clips. Uh, Lex Friedman puts out clips every week, and it was a 12-minute clip, and I listened to most of it. But I'm actually listening to the whole podcast now, and I'm going to buy um, one of Ray Dalio's books, uh, Principles for Success um, or Life and Work, uh, one of those two. Yeah, so or big debt crisis. I'm gonna buy one of his books after listening to him because he's fascinating. And what he talked about was how AI is cannot innovate. Um, he and he was talking about AI is great for doing things uh, where the past is going to mirror the future. And he used some really awesome examples. So basically. It's so funny because this this dovetails with kind of Taleb's deal. So Taleb respects physics and things, uh, physics and hard sciences, because the data that they use in the their forecasts that physics use that uh, that um, physic people in physics use and doctors and stuff like that, the way that people operate in uh, the hard sciences and in medicine currently or have been operating in current medicine is it's based on what works. So you you know you run tests, you run experiments, and once you figure out what works, you can do that over and over again, um, assuming that the uh, conditions aren't changing, right? So that's how you know uh, medicine has been very effective. Is we don't always understand how things work or how a drug works or how a procedure um, helps somebody, but they know from trial and error and testing with people that oh this works. We don't exactly know how it works, but it works. And the thing is this, is that uh, even though humans all have some kind of variation, we all have many similarities. And so you can do kind of like the same thing on many different people and have very similar um, you know, outcomes. That's not always the case, of course. But um, in physics, it's also the same. Like the laws of physics are not changing, or at least they have not changed. So when people in physics figure out a way to do something or figure out how something works – they can use the past data to infer the future success of things reliably. And like I said, in medicine, they can do this too because these are more physical phenomenon that are less likely to change. Okay, so um, Ray Dalio was talking about how basically – okay, so now Taleb loves using the uh, these as examples of where forecasting can work. But outside of you know these certain very narrow things where we have data that we can infer future um, prediction like maybe astronomy and physics and things like that, um, it's best not to try to forecast but to try to use heuristics. Okay, so um, heuristics that uh, give you a, uh, a positive payoff and reduce your harm. 
So that is where his idea of uh, convexity and concavity comes in. Is you want to you want to make decisions in life that um, limit your downside and give you lots of upside. Um, and so instead of having to forecast exactly when a bridge is going to break, you want to basically um, have an engineer instead of forecast when the br- they think the bridge is going to break. You want it to be uh, you want there to be like failsafe mechanisms, redundancies. You want there to be uh, architecture and engineering in place so that it's resilient. You don't want it. You don't want a fragile bridge where you say, "Hey, we can let this many cars on it before it goes down because it's a fragile bridge, and when it goes down, who's ever on it's going to die." You don't want to predict when the bridge is going to fall. You want the bridge to be strong enough so that way, if it does start to fail, there's a backup in place, right? That's kind of uh, more uh, closer to what Taleb's line of thinking would take you. Whereas a forecaster in economics is like, no, 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 no. We can build a uh, fragile, efficient bridge and we just have to predict when it's going to break. And then we'll, because we didn't use any, hardly any resources, we'll just rebuild it again. We'll keep rebuilding a fragile, efficient bridge. It's efficient because it gets the job done with the minimum amount of resources, but it's fragile and that uh, it's not strong. And when it breaks, lots of people are going to die. So we just have to forecast when it's going to break. Whereas using, like I said, Taleb's heuristics would be like, no, 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 no. Instead of trying to forecast when it's going to fail, we let's just make it as strong as possible. And then afterwards, put in redundant systems in place so that way it's resilient or it um, benefits from harm. Now, I don't know how a bridge could benefit from harm, but, um, you know, People have been building and doing – we've been doing lots of things in human history without uh, advanced forecast and mathematics for a long time. And so for Taleb, that is his, his way of like navigating the world is look. Once – or not maybe not his way, but one way he advocates is um, when you are faced with uncertainty, when you don't know what the future is going to be like, you err on the side of caution and you build in – uh, you build in certain precautionary measures to your methodology of going forward, right? So it's like if you don't know if there is a uh, a tiger or if you don't know if there's a shark in the water, you don't just jump in, right? There's an uncertainty there. You test it. Uh, you test, you test, you test, you test, you test. You build something. You look underneath the water. Like you do – you. And even when you do all that, you can't be certain, but maybe instead of testing, testing, testing and going in without any protection, you say, hey, instead of having to – oh, here's a great example. So uh, Taleb's line of thinking would be like this. When faced with uncertainty, say you want to jump into a, uh, an ocean okay, and you don't know if there's sharks. So if you are somebody who's, um, who's like an economist or kind of like the modern-day financial market forecasters, what you would say is, look, here's the data of shark attacks. So the, the data of shark attacks and shark data shows that there shouldn't be any sharks in here today. I forecast that there's no sharks in here. So somebody who runs off forecasts in a complex environment like sharks being in an area, right? This isn't simple. We can forecast – basic physical phenomenon, right, uh, to a certain extent. Once it gets too big and complex, like that of people, animals, 
um, patterns of uh, complex animals and beings and particles, that becomes difficult. But at a basic level, like we understand how gravity works. But maybe we understand, maybe we think we understand how shark uh, migration patterns have been. So you trust the forecaster. He says, I forecast there's no sharks in the water. So you jump into the water, bathing suit, that's it. Okay. If a shark shows up and the forecast is wrong, you're dead. You're dead or you're maimed for life. Okay. So this is the equivalent of going into the stock market, all in, no protection based on forecasting. Now, using a Taleb method would say, okay, um, I don't know if there's any sharks in there, but I don't want to trust the forecast. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go into the water with a protective cage and a camera. So what does the cage do? The cage is going to protect me from any shark. So guess what? If there's no shark, okay, I don't get to move around as freely. It's not as fun. But if there is a shark, I have limited downside. I'm not going to die. The shark can't get to me. And if the shark shows up, then I'll have it on camera and I will benefit immensely from the really cool footage. So that would be like anti-fragile Nassim Taleb style. If you're uncertain if there's sharks in the water and you want to go in the water, then make sure that you're in a protective cage. Even though that cage restricts your movement and it's not as fun, you're not going to die. And if you have a camera, then you could greatly profit from the experience of being attacked by a shark. However, if you trust the forecasters and you jump in and they're wrong, you're dead. And that is what a lot of people do in the stock market. Now, what Ray Dalio was talking about is that AI is great with things where the past is like the future. So if there are certain criteria where the past is like the future, then machine learning works fine. So um, as long as the – like I said, like it's more like physics things. You know, So you could use AI to look at certain phenomenon in nature or maybe some basic patterns. But the problem is – um, civilization, humanity, weather, um, you know, disease, all these things are uh, complex um, dynamic phenomenon. And it's so interesting. I'm, I'm learning about these now in a, in a book called Chaos, which I'm listening to. And Ray Dalio doesn't explicitly say this because of complexity, but he says basically humans are better in that territory. Um, and the idea is when there's uncertainty about whether future conditions will be like the past, it's better to use humans to build algorithms. Um, but if you know that something's going to be like the past, then it's fine to let AI do that kind of, uh, do that kind of research or to let AI do that kind of work. And I thought that is so cool. That uh, the way he described that, because in my opinion, that overlaps with what Nassim Taleb talks about. How basically, and in, in, in my opinion, it's such a strong position for the fact that AI won't displace humans like a lot of people think. Um, it, it, but it just depends on where you fall. In order for, for people to not uh, be taken out by machines, AI, then you have to be engaged in activities in the in the in an uncertain environment um and so like i i don't know exactly what that would be but definitely that's going to be building any kind of business any kind of business that you start a, a an ai could not do that right because any business you start no matter what people try to say all you could use all the past data in the world but 
unless everything in the future is exactly as the past, everything, then it's going to be different and the AI is not going to work. And something being off by a small amount, one variable being off by a small amount can create huge changes in the outcome. So Nassim Taleb talks about this a lot, how um, how forecasting models in complex environments are not that you're better off not using them because a small change in the variable can have a huge difference in the outcome. And I didn't I understood this from listening to him, but I didn't quite get it visually until I was listening to this book called Chaos. Um, and it's about the science of complexity and chaos science. And it's essentially how um, when people started realizing that we couldn't forecast the weather, um, they started realizing that basically there was a, a guy that was running a simulation of weather on his computer, and he was really proud of it back like in the 60s, I think, 70s. And um, he stopped the simulation, and, uh, and like he stopped it, but then when he redid it, the decimal points for one of the, um, one of the variables, instead of it, uh, basically it was being shortened. So instead of it, be, the computer was calculating to like 10 decimals, but it was recording it down physically in like three decimals. So even though it was super, super, super precise, it was not 100% precise. And what happened is, is those super small, like a 0.003% difference in the part of the simulation resulted in him started restarting the simulation and one part of the weather simulation being changed by a small, small sub-fraction, I don't even know if that's real, resulted in a huge variation in the weather patterns that he expected. Huge, totally diverged, totally diverged from what he expected the uh, weather pattern to be. And that's when it hit him that when there are is a the tiniest of variations make it impossible to um, to forecast weather beyond um, like maybe a few hours, for instance. And that's why he said uh, they realized that at that point it was going to be impossible to actually predict the weather because the smallest change in a variable. Will have an unattend, un, will have some kind of effect on the whole system, which will be unknown, and it's just unknown. It makes it totally changes the nature of what's going on. And in financial models, it's like that as well. So if somebody in a financial model has anything incorrect, because these are interconnected dynamic systems. One change in a um, maybe in the price of one commodity, right, uh, might have a a a nonlinear change somewhere else down the chain. So maybe the there's a small price of gold spike. Well, you think that the you know that all of these relationships are predictable, but because the price of gold spiked somewhere, it caused somebody to sell off massively in an asset somewhere else like sharp 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 decline they just sold off something because you know for whatever reason but be that sharp decline was not uh called for in the model but then that sharp decline also caused somebody else to buy up an asset somewhere else and that would not have been account would not have been accounted for because the sharp decline wasn't accounted for so now you have this 
this uh, snowball effect of all these unintended consequences because you don't understand how the variables are affecting each other. Anyway, I think I'm done with this rant. But if you go and listen to uh, Ray Dalio and Lex Friedman's uh, their interview, it's fascinating. So awesome. That's all I got today on this awesome Friday. I hope everyone has a wonderful day, and I will talk to you on Monday. Thank you. Oh, you can subscribe to my YouTube channel, Taylor Space Stutch, S-T-U-C-H. Follow me on Twitter, tstutch1. Go to my website, tstutch.com. Uh, email me, tayradio1 at gmail.com. Thank you. That's all.